I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine scripture through the lens of the context of the people who live the stories that we read about. For the past month, as we've been reading the stories of Joseph, the oldest son of Rachel, and the one whom Jacob had chosen as his heir, we read of the two dreams that Joseph had been given to demonstrate God's plan for his life. Greatness, honor, power, authority. And then in shame, Joseph was kidnapped and sold into slavery. Last week, we looked at how Joseph may have deserved his treatment. He had thought himself greater than the sons of the slaves, and so he himself became a slave. We've also looked at how this course may have been the only way Joseph would have been able to stay alive. With his brothers looking for his blood, Joseph being sent away was the only way to keep him breathing for the destiny that God had prepared for him. Now in slavery, Joseph distinguished himself and was distinguished by God and rose to a position of power and authority. It would seem as if God's promise were coming true. His elevation was occurring. But then, then the wife of his master makes a false accusation, sending Joseph even further into shame, seemingly further away from the promise that God had made. Last week, we examined how even in this, Joseph may have deserved his treatment in some way. For what was it that Joseph did to his brothers, the sons of those slaves? He brought a slanderous report against them. And now he was the victim of a slanderous report. And yet even now, even in prison, Joseph distinguished himself and was distinguished by God. He was elevated above all other prisoners and given authority. And there he stayed for years. And in this place, two men came, two dreams in one night, and Joseph takes the only chance he has. He tells the cupbearer, Tell others about me. I don't deserve to be here. And yet it is in this prison that he's forced to stay for another two years. When the cupbearer left, Joseph did not believe that he belonged in prison, that he had done nothing to deserve this treatment. And yet, was that actually true? Now, did he do anything directly to deserve this treatment? No, he was innocent of the crime that he was charged with. And yet, in some way, in some degree, he still deserved to be in prison, for he had not yet learned that he too was no better than a slave. He had not fully internalized the lesson and the full effects that slanderous accusation can have upon another person. And so it is two more years in prison. He is given time to sit and reflect and perhaps to come to the realization that he was not inherently honorable. There was nothing within himself that made him fit to rule. 
he was no better than his brothers. He was no better than a slave. He was no better than a prisoner. It was these things that he deserved. He did not deserve honor. He did not deserve to be elevated. And so last week when Pharaoh had his own two dreams in one night, Joseph is brought before him and Joseph acts in utter humility. He acts as if he's expecting to be returned to the dungeon. First, he does not claim the power of dream interpretation as his own. He declares before Pharaoh that interpretations come from God alone. Then, when he is finished giving the interpretation, Joseph ends not with an appeal to be released or to be put into the position that he had recommended. He appeals to Pharaoh to simply find somebody that he trusts to do this job. And the word was good in the eyes of Pharaoh. And that's where we ended last week. Joseph was given the chance to come out of the dungeon. He was offered the opportunity to tell his story to the one person who might hear and might bless him with a release. And yet Joseph does not use this opportunity to plead his own case. He does not beg for release. He does not beg to be elevated. He seems broken, humiliated, humbled. Finally, he does not presume upon Pharaoh or presume even upon the judgment of Potiphar being overturned or even presume upon God himself. Only hours before his day had started like every other day for the past few years. And now he's speaking to the king. He had no time to plan or to think about what was occurring. He could only react to what was happening, and his instant reaction was humility. And this is where we pick up this week. Pharaoh has heard the interpretation of his dream from Joseph. He has heard Joseph's recommendation of what he is to do in response to these dreams. And it was good in his eyes and in the eyes of the court. So let's read this week's passage and then examine the fallout of this series of events. Genesis 41, 38-42, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Could we find another like him, a man in whom is the spirit of Elohim? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since Elohim has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. Be over my house, you, yourself, and at your mouth all my people shall kiss. Only in the throne I am greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Mitzrayim. And Pharaoh took his seal ring off his hand and put it in Yosef's hand. And he dressed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee! And he set him over all the land of Mitzrayim. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, I am Pharaoh, and without a word from you let no man lift his hand or foot in all the land of Mitzrayim. And Pharaoh called Yosef's name Zafnat Paneach. And he gave him as a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. And Yosef went out over all the land of Mitzrayim. And now Yosef was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, sovereign of Mitzrayim. And Yosef went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and went through all the land of Mitzrayim. And in the seven years of plenty the ground brought forth generously. And he gathered all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Mitzrayim. And he laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Thus Yosef gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea, until he ceased counting, for it was without number. And to Yosef were born two sons, before the years of scarcity of food came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. And Yosef called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, 
for Elohim has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for Elohim has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Mitzrayim came to an end, and the seven years of scarcity of food began to come, as Yosef had said. And the scarcity of food was in all the lands, but in all the land of Mitzrayim there was bread. And when all the land of Mitzrayim gathered and the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said to the Mitzrites, Go to Yosef and do whatever he says to you. And the scarcity of food was over all the face of the earth, and Yosef opened all the storehouses and sold to the Mitzrites. And the scarcity of food was severe in the land of Mitzrayim. And all the earth came to Yosef in Mitzrayim to buy grain, because the scarcity of food was severe in all the earth. And when Yaakov saw that there was grain in Mitzrayim, Yaakov said to his sons, Why do you look at each other? And he said, See, I have heard that there is grain in Mitzrayim. Go down to that place and buy for us there, and let us live and not die. And Yosef's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Mitzrayim. But Yosef did not send Yosef's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Thus some harm come to him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the scarcity of food was in the land of Canaan. And Yosef was the governor of the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Yosef's brothers came and bowed before him with their faces to the earth. And Yosef saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke to them harshly and said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Yosef recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Yosef remembered the dream which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my master, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are trustworthy. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And see, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. And Yosef said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. By this you shall be proven. By the life of Pharaoh, you do not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you are kept in prison. So let your words be proven to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh you are spies. And he put them all together in prison for three days. So as this Parsha opens, the first few verses of this week's text, it offers us a picture of Pharaoh. You see, this Pharaoh is not the same Pharaoh that enslaves Israel. In all likelihood, this Pharaoh was Semitic. He's a Hyksos, not an Egyptian. And just a few verses before, Joseph had said, let Pharaoh look for a man of discernment and wisdom to implement this policy that he had just laid out. And in verse 38 this week, Pharaoh has just heard this and thought that that's a good idea. And then he turns to his servants and he declares, could we search for a man to which the Spirit of God comes? Uh, this is a rhetorical question because he immediately follows up with, God has made all of this known to you. There's none so wise and discerning as you. So while Joseph is finally resigned to a position as the lowest of the low, Pharaoh recognizes Joseph as wise and discerning. And so Pharaoh elevates Joseph to second in command in his own household. And then he's given command of the entire land of Egypt. He's elevated through a gift of clothing, the linen, white clothing. And that's a significant symbol that we're not going to really examine today, but we will near the end of Exodus. And he's given costly jewelry. Well, we thought that 
the second in command in Potiphar's house was great when Joseph attained that position, right? He was a slave, but suddenly he's elevated to the second command of a powerful man in Egypt. But had he been there, he never would have had this chance to get to this place. And now Joseph commands even Potiphar. In verse 43, Joseph is given charge of what's called a second chariot, but the Hebrew word could also mean a duplicate. Now, in the ancient Near East, the king's chariot was seen as a mobile throne, the place of the king's authority when he wasn't in his palace. And being given a duplicate or even a secondary chariot was an honor that set Joseph as equal to Pharaoh in the eyes of the people. Because when he was out, he was on Pharaoh's throne. Now, this idea of a mobile throne is not one that's simply limited to Egyptian or ancient Egyptian thought, but it's something that we read all throughout Scripture. In Daniel 7, 9, the throne of God himself is wheeled. Daniel 7, 9, I was looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days was seated, and his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like clean wool, and his throne was flames of fire, its wheels burning fire. In Ezekiel 1, we read of a wheeled vehicle in connection to the throne of God as well, and the wheels of the throne are inhabited by spirits, and they are aflame as well. Where else do we read of a chariot that was on fire? 2 Kings 2.11 And it came to be as they continued on and spoke that see a chariot of fire with horses of fire which separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into the heavens. The concept of the chariot as the royal throne is one that's been around in scholarly circles for several decades but hasn't been picked up and gained wide acceptance until just recently. The idea that the wheels of the throne are simply allegory has been around so long that this has become the standard interpretation. But the chariot throne concept is quickly replacing this idea. I highly recommend a study of this in scripture, but there's not a whole lot applicable that can be gained from it other than some maybe some deeper understanding of several passages. So for now, let's go ahead and move on. In verse 45, some very interesting things happen. Joseph has a name change. His name is changed to Zaphnat Paneach, and he's given a wife by Pharaoh. First of all, let's look at Joseph's wife. Her name is Asenat, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So who or what is On? Well, I skimmed through the listings of many gods of Egypt trying to discover who On was, and I was unable to discover anything about a god named On that, that, that doesn't exist. And then I stumbled upon an apparently widely known truth and decided to look it up in my concordance and discovered that on is not a god. On is the city. It's the ancient name of the city that we call Heliopolis, the great city of the sun, the center of sun worship. And Potipharah was the high priest. The high priest in Heliopolis was given the title of the great seer, and he was the head of the Egyptian religion, second in religion only to Pharaoh himself. This position is analogous to Aaron's position as high priest, second only to Moses himself. Now, some think that Potipharah is perhaps another name for Potiphar, but that's not the case. Potiphar was never described as having any sort of religious function in Egypt. He is simply a government functionary. Rather, I see this as a simple recognition of what could have been and was not, and what is greater that was. Now, Joseph could have remained as a functionary in Potiphar's house, and likely he regretted losing his position in Potiphar's house when he lost it. But now, though, he's greater than Potiphar, and he is the son-in-law of one who is greater than Potiphar. 
not just a government functionary, but the high priest of Egypt. And then there's the name that Pharaoh gives to Joseph. Now, the name is an Egyptian name, and its meaning isn't 100% known. Most concordances will say that this name means something like the treasury of the glorious rests. That's a much older thought. Modern scholarship is leaning towards the meaning of the name being something along the lines of the revealer of the hidden. Pharaoh is giving Joseph not just a place of great authority, honor, and power, but he's also connecting Joseph to all of the right people. His name is the revealer of the hidden, and his father-in-law is the great seer. And in this, Joseph is also given religious immunity. He's the one who has the gods reveal their secrets to him. Who are you to question his religion, even if it doesn't match your own? And then next we read of seven years of plenty. And in this time, we read that Joseph gathered up the grain from the surrounding cities as much as the sands of the seas. But this is an idiom. Uh, we may use it in a future lesson to examine the possible metaphor of Joseph in the story. For what were the sons of Jacob pictured as in Joseph's first dream back in chapter 37? They were sheaves of grain. And whom have we read before that is as numerous as the sands of the sea? Well, for now it's an idiom that means to be too great to be counted, and that's exactly what is said afterwards. And then in the midst of this fruitfulness of the land, Joseph is blessed with two sons. First, Manasseh. Manasseh means caused to forget. And then Ephraim. And Ephraim means double fruitfulness. The seven years of plenty, they then end, and the seven years of famine begin. And when the famine begins, the people begin to come to Joseph, and Joseph begins to sell their food back to them. In chapter 42, the famine expands, and the land of Canaan begins to experience the hardship of the famine. And after five chapters, the narrative returns once again to the house of Jacob. Jacob's sons are at a loss for what to do, and so Jacob comes to them and says, Why are you sitting on your hands? Go to Egypt. Buy food from there. And so the ten sons of Jacob, they travel to Egypt for food. And Joseph is overseeing the sale of the grain to the people, and when his brothers arrive and bow before him, he recognizes them immediately. It's at this time that we're told that Joseph remembers the dream that he received when this story began. In the events that follow this week and in upcoming weeks, we see that the dream itself came true. His family members bow before him, but the specifics of the dream never do come true. Now, what do I mean? Well, in the second dream, his father and mother, as well as all of his brothers, they bow to him, and yet we never read of Jacob bowing to Joseph. And in fact, both Leah and Rachel, they're dead at this point. Rachel, we read about her death, but Leah, we learn later that she'd been buried in the cave of Machpelah with Avraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah before Jacob came to Egypt. So we can add this to our discussion of dreams from previous weeks, loose symbolic metaphor. The exact specifics may not occur. Anyway, as Joseph sees his brothers, the old wounds open, and it's as if Joseph decides in a moment of passion to make his brothers pay for their crimes against him. He first levels a false accusation against them. You are spies. You've come to spy out the weakness of the land. They obviously protest that they are but the sons of a single man, not spies at all. And so Joseph comes up with a solution. Prove to me that Benjamin is alive and well. Bring him to me and prove that you have not done to him what you did to me. One of you, go home and fetch your younger brother and bring him to me. 
Until then, have a taste of what I have gone through. You can spend a few days in prison. Cool your heels. Feel the shame that was my life. And as I reflected on this event this week, I couldn't help but get the feeling that immediately Joseph wanted to make his brothers pay to get revenge on them. At least a little. He wanted to put them through just a small taste of his own experience. He knows nothing of his brothers since they sold him into slavery. He has perhaps built them up in his mind as monsters and completely sold out to evil inventions of their own heart. And rightfully, he doesn't trust them. But in the same way, unjustly, he believes them to be the same people who hurt him. He assumes that they have been stagnant in their growth while he has grown and he has changed in his own life. And it's not until the three days pass that Joseph gets the first inkling that his brothers may not be the same evil men that he's made them out to be. But that's something for next week. And this is where our text ends for the week. So let's look back at the scope of the section of the narrative and explore a few things that are accomplished here. First of all, the narrative begins with Joseph still as a prisoner. He has not yet been elevated. Why was he a prisoner? Well, because a false accusation was leveled at him. But by the end of this narrative arc, Joseph has been elevated to the position that could be described as the second most powerful man in the world. And his brothers, though, his brothers now find themselves in the position that he began in. Prisoners because of a false accusation. And in this way, we can possibly catch a glimpse of what Yeshua describes in Matthew 20, verse 16. It says, Thus the last shall be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Uh, but perhaps not. The context of that passage does not lend itself to a literal interpretation that we wish to give it. Or rather, in context, that Matthew passage is speaking of a situation where all of the workers in the field receive the same wage, regardless of when they started or how much they accomplished. Another thing that we find occurring in this narrative is something that's very common in scripture, but also in any honor-shame-based literature, and that is the reversal of fortunes, the instantaneous change from low and shameful status to a position of honor, power, and authority. Or, alternately, a person of high honor, power, and authority being brought to the lowest place. Well, we have similar stories in our guilt-innocence framework. Usually the reversal in this mindset comes not from the gods smiling on a person or through some great upheaval in order. Rather, in the guilt-innocence, the story takes on the reversal as a side effect of the hard work of the one who's had his fortune reversed. The band that plays for years unnoticed and then their song is played on the radio or comes to the attention of the right person and suddenly they're playing on stadiums. The homeless man who determines to improve his situation and after hard work he lands the multi-million dollar job. The man who through his great talent or knowledge wins the competition and becomes a household name. You get the idea. The person of low status unknown who becomes great through his own hard work, his own knowledge, his own power and ability. And this is very similar to an honor-shame reversal of fortune. The difference between the two occurs in the means of elevation. In guilt and innocence, it's the hard work that's rewarded. It's the inherent goodness and the focus of the individual that brings about the reversal of fortunes. The thought behind this being that if you buckle down and work hard, you too can be elevated to a place of wealth and honor. But in honor-shame reversal, it is not the person. 
It's not what the person knows or what the person does that changes their status. Rather, it's who they know. A sister marrying a rich relative that then provides a position of honor. It's catching the attention of a rich patron. Being born into a family that has inherent honor. More importantly, in the case of the Bible, it's connected to being in covenant with the God of the universe. It's knowing him and being faithful to him that brings about the reversals of fortune that we read in scripture. Let's look at some examples of this occurring in the Bible and then dig deeper into what we can learn from this theme that repeats all through scripture. And this is just a few quick examples of this type of narrative in the Bible. So first of all, let's stop at Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, we're introduced to a man named Gideon. Gideon is self-described as belonging to the weakest of the clans of Manasseh, and Gideon himself the least in his father's house. Not a man of honor or power, not a man who worked to be elevated to a position of greatness, but rather the lowest of the low who's hiding himself in a wine press so that the wheat that he's threshing will not be stolen by the Midianites. And into this, God sends an angel to announce that Gideon was to be elevated to a position of honor in Israel. Now Gideon, of course, he does not believe, and so he asks for signs to shore up his faith. God provides the sign, and Gideon forms an army. The army is small, and God demands that it be made smaller. When the fighting men have been whittled down to only 300, it's only then that the battle begins. And when the battle is engaged, it's not engaged in strength of arms, but rather through cunning. And as jars are being broken and torches are revealed, the men shout. And what do they shout? A sword for Adonai and for Gideon. From this point on, Gideon becomes the most powerful man in Israel. This man of low status, no hope of more, raised into a position of great honor. So let's look at another, a man that we're all really familiar with, the man David. The least of the sons of Jesse, no hope for anything more than being a shepherd all of his days. And one day Samuel comes to town and anoints him king. God's will and future plans for David revealed to him at a very young age. And from that point, David is elevated in honor to servant of the king and the slayer of giants. But then he's made into a fugitive and he goes on the run. He's forced to go and live among the enemies of the people. And then in a single day, Saul and his sons are killed. And at the age of 30, David is elevated to the position of king of Judah. How about another? After Israel has been exiled, they've been allowed to return. There arose a king in Persia, one of great power who ruled the entirety of the known world. One day this king finds himself in need of a princess, and after a beauty pageant of the ages, he chooses Esther, a young Jewish girl, to be his queen. The elevation of Esther is only one reversal of fortune that's found in this book, but this reversal takes on the mold of a guilt-innocence reversal as Esther is raised due to her beauty and bearing. But as the story unfolds, it's revealed that Esther's people are in danger of being wiped out in the kingdom of Persia. The second-in-command, Haman, he is intent on killing the Jews. Then, through a series of events, the fortunes are reversed in the kingdom as Haman, who was second in the kingdom, is cast down and destroyed, and Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, is raised up to be the right hand of the king. The Jews themselves, as a people, they experience a reversal of fortune as well as they go from a people of notoriety to a people of great honor in the kingdom of Persia. Another, 
How about Israel in Egypt? Slaves of the people of Egypt, destroyed by the king, hated to the point that all of the boys were destroyed in order to keep the people in check. Then comes Moses, a young boy that belongs to a family of no importance and is raised into a position of honor in Pharaoh's household. Then his fortune is reversed once again as he becomes a fugitive on the run for his life. Then his fortune changes again as he's elevated to the position of the mouthpiece of God. Then Moses is used by God to be the tool that brings about the reversal of fortunes for the entire nation of Israel. Those who had been oppressors were brought down and oppressed. And the oppressed were delivered and made into a great and mighty nation. The books of the prophets, they're full of this theme and this type of language, but it's been recognized that perhaps Hosea captures the idea of the reversal of fortune better than most. And the reversals of Hosea are many and various, as he warns against the people of Israel. For example, Hosea 5.14, For I am like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I myself tear them and go. I take them away, and there is no one to save them. But then later on in the book, Hosea 11, 9-10, I shall not let the heat of my wrath burn. I shall not turn to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I shall not come to enmity. Let them follow Adonai, like a lion he roars, and when he roars, the suns shall tremble from the west. God is depicted as a lion who would destroy Ephraim and Judah. And then later he's depicted as a lion that will protect Ephraim from their enemies. What kind of awesome reversal of fortune is that, that God is the one who will destroy them, but also the one who will protect them from destruction? Or how about when God names the son of Hosea with the imagery of how he himself would treat faithless Israel? Hosea 1, verse 2, 4, 6, 8, and 9. Or the imagery of the children used throughout the book in Hosea 11, 1 through 5, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. They called to them, and so they went from their face, and they sacrificed to the Baals, and, and burned incense to carved images. And I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with ropes of man, with cords of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, and I bent down, fed them. No, let him return to the land of Mitzrayim, and let Assyria be his king, because they refused to repent. But then later in Hosea thirteen eleven through 13, I give you a king in my displeasure, and I took him away with my wrath. The crookedness of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hidden. Pains of a woman in labor shall come upon him, for he is not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the breaking forth of children. The theme is expanded through Hosea 4, 6, 5, 7, and 9, 1 through 12. And in each of these cases, Israel is steeped in the metaphor of a child or a son who is wicked, disrespectful, and sinful. And God is the parent who must punish them. God declares in these later passages that he will, in fact, forget their children. But then there's Hosea 6, 1 through 3, where it says, Come and let us turn back to Adonai, for he has torn, but he does heal us. He has stricken, but he binds us up. After two days he shall revive us, and on the third day he shall raise us up, so that we live before him. So let us pursue to know Hashem. His going forth is as certain as the morning, and he comes to us like the rain, like the latter rain, watering the earth. Ephraim, what would I do with you? Yehuda, what would I do with you? For your loving kindness is like the morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. 
or Hosea 11, 8 through 11. How could I give you up, Ephraim? How could I hand you over, Israel? How could I make you like Adma? How could I set you like Zevoim? My heart turns within me, and all my compassion is kindled. I shall not let the heat of my wrath burn. I shall not turn to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I shall not come in enmity. Let them follow Hashem like a lion he roars. When he roars, the suns shall tremble from the west, and they shall tremble like a bird from Mitzrayim, and like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I shall let them dwell in their own houses, declares Adonai. In these two passages, we read of the children who were wicked becoming repentant and being restored, and God's compassion upon his children. It's the same symbol, the children, two sides of the story. Fortune dashed to pieces, fortune lavished upon them, fortunes reversed. Or we could look at the ultimate reversal of fortune. There was a man from Nazareth, a great teacher and a miracle worker. This man was a bastard, no human father, conceived before his mother's marriage. He came from a city of no importance and belonged to a family of no importance. He spent his ministry reversing the fortunes of countless others as he healed the lame and the sick. He brought sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and he returned lepers to society and raised up the poor, meek, and the downtrodden. This man was shamed in the worst possible way, stripped of his clothes and beaten to a bloody pulp, forced to carry the instrument of his torture through the streets, crucified before a mob as they watched his shame and his life pass from his flesh. Then, in a single instant, he was raised up to a position of honor greater than any had ever known before, raised to a throne in the heavens and given all dominion and power and authority in heaven and on earth, taken from the ultimate in humility and given the greatest of honors. And this is, in fact, the gospel. This was the declaration that Yeshua made as his first public announcement of his ministry in Luke 4, 18-19. The Spirit of Hashem is upon me because He has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to send away crushed ones with a release, and to proclaim the acceptable year of Hashem. In essence, He is saying, I have been sent to reverse the fortunes of mankind, to make all things new. And this is the truth of the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom in which the shame of death will be reversed. The disgrace of sin will be reversed. The dishonorable states of sickness and disease will no longer be seen. The kingdom of God is one in which shame is defeated forever, never to be seen again. And we get to participate in that kingdom now. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Or do you know the favor of our Master Yeshua, Messiah, that being rich, he became poor for your sake, that you might become rich through his poverty? The entirety of Ephesians 2 describes this reversal of fortune that the Christian life includes. But here's a snippet, verses 1-7, through 7, that explores it in depth. And you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, but also the rest. 
but God who is rich in compassion, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenlies, in Messiah Yeshua, in order to show in the coming ages the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. Romans 8, 28-31, And we know that all matters work together for good of those whom love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he knew beforehand, he also ordained beforehand to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, for him to be the firstborn among many brothers, and whom he ordained beforehand, these he also called, and whom he called, he also declares just, and whom he declares just, these he also honors. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? We as humans in our natural state, we're in a place of shame in connection with God. And he provides a way for us to be raised to a place of honor, to be glorified, not just in the future, but glorified even now, not through anything that we have done. It's our guilt-innocence mindset that tempts us with this idea the idea that we have an inherent honor. Rather, it's because of who we know. We know the King of all creation, and He has all honor and glory, and He extends His own honor towards us. He will raise us up to a position of authority and a state of honor. He returns us to the role that we were given in Genesis 1, rulers of the earth. And we, like Joseph, we must continue in humility, especially once given a place of honor. We must use our position to cultivate the bread of life and to give it to a world that is experiencing a drought of the hearing of the word of God. We don't have to remain in shame. And if you are his, shame is anathema to you. Regardless of your station or your place of life, he has given you an honor that surpasses anything this world has to offer. Insisting that you are shameful in the face of this gift of honor is to declare that his gift is worthless. He knows what you have done. He knows who you are. He knows your shame. And he has declared you his child. And he has lifted you up to honor. He is enough. You have been saved. And now you embody his honor. And it's your responsibility to model that honor to the world. So lift your heads high. Not because you have been counted as worthy. Not because of your own inherent worth. But because he has given you worth. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of his love for you. No one is greater than the master, and the master endured the greatest of shame, and the master received the greatest of honor. If you are his, his humility is yours, and his honor is yours. Do not deny it by insisting on wallowing in shame. Accept it, embrace it. He has lifted you up from the pit. He has brought you out from the miry clay. He has removed the stench of death from you, and he has brought you to him. He has bestowed upon you his own glory. He is all honor, and he has reversed your fortune. You are his child. Shame simply cannot stick to you unless you allow it. Without shame, you're free to derish high. You're free to seek life in whatever way God reveals it to you, even if that means becoming a slave or a servant 
or descending to the lowest of lows. But always continue, regardless of what situation you find yourself in. Continue to seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.